Well, we begin today, um, December 1st, it's Advent season, and um, we have the opportunity to, I guess, usher in our time of celebration of the Savior's birth. It's a, a wonderful opportunity for God's people to engage in this wondrous celebration of the coming of Christ. Um, I don't know about you, but have you noticed that um, traffic is picking up a little bit? Have you noticed that maybe tensions are elevating a little bit? Maybe you uh, are anticipating family coming to town. Maybe you're hosting a large contingency of your family. Maybe you're contemplating the ordeal of having to navigate the eccentricities of Uncle Joe or Aunt Mabel and their personalities while they're in your home. Maybe, maybe you need to think about whether you're not Uncle Joe or Aunt Mabel going to someone else's home. But the fact of the matter is, is that this time of year just brings with it a natural elevated level of unique experiences of all types. They, they run the gamut, don't they? Emotions, expectations, hopes and fears of all the years, um, joy, celebration. I don't know about you, but I've also noticed that there's a lot more uh, festive decorations all around. So you have this season of lights and unique music. There are are those, though, that have trouble with this time of year for a range of reasons, too. Um, There are people that are actually struggling and suffering during this season of the year. And at times, that might make persevering in times of struggle and challenge a little more poignant and a little more difficult, even for the faithful believer, because all around them, there is the accoutrements of celebration and food and frivolity and lights and singing and music that's unique during this time of year. And it it might make a unique struggle, a unique point of suffering all the more poignant uh, for those who might be going through those kinds of things. It's a unique time of year for many reasons. Certainly we can lament the commercialization elements of this season Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but Black Friday no longer happens on Black Friday. Have you noticed that? In fact, it no longer happens on Thanksgiving evening. Uh, I I remember early, sometime in November, seeing advertisements and pop-ups on apps and everything of Black Friday sales starting in November. So the encroachment of these, even these kinds of things onto our minds and our thoughts um, is really pervasive, is it not? And we can become, I think, rather cynical. Uh, we can become a little bit frustrated and irritated. We can, we can look at the encroachment of what we see as just pure and out-and-out worldliness, uh, really co-opting what is to be a sacred season of celebration for the faithful. And we can become frustrated and irritated by this reality. We may even have deep convictions about the celebration of Christmas and maybe some of the traditions that accompany typical celebrations of Christmas that we find nowhere in Scripture and we believe them to be really pagan and worldly in their origin. 
And that produces a provocative sting in our conscience. There's a whole range of things that we experience this time of year that are very, very unique. And oftentimes, uniquely poignant for us. Nevertheless, as God's people, we are to be about redemption. We are to be about redeeming things through Christ. And I think the celebration of Christmas is no different. And I think that all these things that I've described and so many more examples that you can think of on your own that could produce in us something less than a redemptive celebration of Christmas, we probably want to take some time to reflect upon and really address. So that, as we enter into this time of Advent and this celebration of the coming of our Savior, we can indeed redeem Christmas this year. So I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9 with me. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 7. This is one of the more familiar Advent passages, prophetic passages of the coming of Christ. It is a text that is layered with rich truth, far more than I will be prepared to deal with, have time to deal with today. Um, I would encourage you to to seek out messages that really work through this passage expositionally. I know Shane taught on this a few years ago, and he has a message that's available on our media site that's really good, and he focuses on the context of chapter 9 and, and chapter 8. And so I would encourage you to go listen to that. But we are going to use this as sort of a springboard to think about some things that might encourage us, enable us, give us a frame of thinking to uh, give us the best opportunity to redeem Christmas this year, to redeem this season to the glory of God. So I invite you to read along with me in Isaiah chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll go down through verse 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff For his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, I'm guessing that you won't see this on any Christmas cards. But when we come to Isaiah 9-6, this rings very familiar. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice 
and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, I've framed up our, our discussion and our thoughts today on this incredibly rich passage, uh, beginning with two crucial questions that I want to just put out there for us to consider, for us to think through. And I take them from the text, but let's consider two, I think, very important questions that are critical for us to answer if we are to really be in a position to redeem Christmas, to walk through this season of the year in redemptive and purposeful ways. The first question is really straightforward, and it's this. Do you see the darkness? Do you see the darkness? Of course, in verse 2, or excuse me, yes, in verse 2, we see very explicit references to darkness. We see references that say those who walked in darkness, and another reference, those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness. And we're going to come back to those. Those are straightforward. There's explicit references to darkness. So if I were to ask you, do you see the darkness? You could go to the text and say, yes, it's right there. Verse two, walked in darkness, dwelt in the land of deep darkness. But let's look a little more closely at verse one, because you have implicit references that are tied to the context of this passage in, in, in chapter eight. Look at verse one, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So you have these references, uh, implicit or implied references to darkness. You have gloom, this term gloom, which is a term, a Hebrew word that means partial or total darkness or a state of depression or despondency or dimness. Something that obscures clear view and clear vision of things. And then you have this term anguish, which is a, is a reference to severe mental or physical pain or suffering. In fact, the King James Version, although the translation is somewhat questionable, I like the wording of it as it relates to these two terms, gloom and anguish. It says, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. There's a word to drop on someone. Use vexation in a sentence sometime soon. But this idea of darkness, of something that's covering our field of vision, something that's reducing our clarity of sight, and then the consequent result of that internally is anguish, mental pain, physical pain, despairing. And then you have this term contempt, contempt on the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, another reference to an idea of darkness, the feeling that someone or something is worthless or beneath consideration. So right there in the text, you have both in verse 1 and verse 2 references to darkness. It's, it's in fact a major scene, a major setting for what takes place in the following verses. The context of this, and as I said, uh, Isaiah chapter 8, really starting in verse 11 um, great passage, but also a great sermon that Shane preached a number of years ago. I would encourage you to go listen to that. But this really sets the context and really gives us a vivid picture of this, this period, this atmosphere of gloom and darkness and despair that sets the stage for the coming of light. 
you have both Israel and Jerusalem, excuse me, Israel and Judah. And for a time, they'd enjoyed a season of relative peace and prosperity. Uh, 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 the likes of which they hadn't really seen for nearly a hundred years since the time of Solomon. So this was a period of time where Judah and Israel were at peace and they were prospering prior to this context. Unfortunately, sadly, and in what is often the case as we read the history of, of Israel in the Old Testament, this period of God's providential kindness and blessing was not met with devotion, with genuine worship, with a grateful heart for the Lord. In fact, it was quite the contrary. You had in the northern kingdom, initially under Jeroboam II, and then subsequent to that, succeeding kings who were were given the the very well-known moniker, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Those were the kings of Israel that characterized, that, that came after Jeroboam, and Jeroboam himself bearing that infamous moniker. You even have Hosea and his prophecy really focusing in on what was happening in Israel during this time, and he compares Israel's corruption to that of uh, an actual shameless prostitute. The whole prophecy of Hosea centers on that that metaphor, that idea in identifying the apostasy and the, and the corruption in Israel. And Isaiah, in fact, employs similar graphic language in chapter 1, verse 21 to 23. He's speaking of Jerusalem, and he's speaking of Jerusalem as a city that represents the entire nation. And he says this, How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. This was a period of time subsequent to this period of prosperity in which The corruption in the land of Israel, both in Israel in the divided kingdom period and in Judah, was a season of corruption. And even though in the southern kingdom, under Uzziah's reign, they they enjoyed a certain degree of, of, we'll call it, relative goodness compared to Israel. In other words, they did not really fall off the cliff completely into apostasy in the same way that Israel did. They still became very proud of heart, and their worship became ritualistic and empty of any genuine devotion to the Lord. And they became really arrogant in their condescension toward their neighbors to the north, their brothers to the north in Israel, referring to them as godless. And in their own pride, they they elevated their own sense of spiritual well-being. Even Uzziah, who was considered to be a good king uh, relative to these other kings, particularly in Israel, he succumbed to this level of pride. It tells us of this in Second Chronicles 25. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. 
So even Uzziah, as a, a relatively good king, found himself swelled up with pride because of the success that he had enjoyed at the hand of God's kind providence. And the people were no different. After this unfaithful act, Isaiah was struck with leprosy and his son Jotham had to sort of administer the kingdom on his behalf and was eventually made king. He was also uh, spoken of well that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But it also tells us in 2 Chronicles 27, but the practices, but the people still followed corrupt practices. So he was not successful in leading the people to purity of devotion to the Lord. And then, of course, succeeding Jotham was Ahaz. And in Judah, with Ahaz, things went really bad. It was during the reign of Ahaz in the southern kingdom of Judah that this darkness and this gloom that Isaiah is speaking of in chapter 9, verse 1, really settles in. Ahaz was an open idolater. Uh, He sought refuge in the things of this world, in the wisdom of this world. When facing threats from a recently allied Syria and Israel that were encroaching into Jerusalem to lay siege to Jerusalem, rather than him heeding the counsel, the prophetic counsel of Isaiah to trust in the Lord, he sought an alliance with Assyria, another pagan kingdom. And this did not turn out well for Judah in in the end as well. And this is the context. This, This era of debauchery, this era of faithlessness, this era of empty religion and ritual, this era of pride of men, this period of trusting in the wisdom of the world rather than trusting in the Lord. This is the nature of the darkness that Isaiah is speaking of. People feared men rather than God. They placed their trust in idolatrous rulers rather than in God. They trusted in these unholy alliances for their protection rather than trusting in the deliverance of the Lord. They sought counsel from the gurus of the day, the spiritists, the necromancers, the fortune tellers, those that would claim to have special insight, unique insight, insight you can't get anywhere else. Does that ring familiar to our day, how people are seeking counsel from the specially wise of the world and not finding truth anywhere in it? That was taking place during this time as well. Even during their time of great distress, they still raged against God and they continued to pursue earthly answers and earthly remedies for what was really, in fact, a spiritual problem, a problem of rebellion against their God. In chapter 8, verse 21 to 22, Isaiah sums it up this way. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. In other words, They don't repent. They don't recognize they have great need. They don't recognize that the darkness is in them. They just want God or the king to make all of this bad go away. And so they rage against God and their king and turn their faces upward. In verse 22 of chapter 8, and they look to the earth 
But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And then we turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, and that's the setting. Isaiah could see the darkness. Isaiah was living in the midst of this darkness. But look with me briefly at verse 2. Again, this this part of the passage that speaks specifically of the people who walked in darkness, and then those who dwell in the land of deep darkness. Isaiah here is describing a darkness that is really all-consuming and inescapable. It's an immediate darkness, the kind that is right with you, and you have to grope and stumble over every step in the midst of it. But it's also a surrounding darkness. It blankets the entire environment in which everyone lives. You can't escape it. It's pervasive. It's imminent. It's all-consuming. So it's within you, and it's all around you. This really harkens back to that unbelievable passage In Isaiah chapter 6, that incredible vision of the exalted Lord, where Isaiah is in the temple and he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and he saw the Lord surrounded by these worshiping angels, and they were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in the paralyzing presence of the exalted Lord. What does Isaiah say? Woe is me. Why? For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So think about our environment. Think about your heart. Think about our world. Do you see the darkness? Most of us don't want to see it. We don't want to look at it. We need to see it in this way. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Your family's coming over for Christmas. It's a big affair. You have a tradition every year where you load up in whatever vehicles you need to load up in for the number of people you have in your midst, because you are going to do your annual trek around the neighborhood to see the Christmas lights, the season of this spectacle of lights. And so you're going to partake in this annual tradition. You set the date, all the family has it on their calendar, but you specify that this year's tour is going to take place at noon, Broad daylight in the middle of the day. Imagine. Imagine what a dreadful experience that would be. You're driving around and you're looking at tangled wires, unilluminated light bulbs, and de-inflated piles of some such character in the yard that just is just looks really tacky, for lack of a better term, that would be your tour. That's what you would see. 
And the reason is really straightforward. If you're going to experience and really deeply enjoy the beauty of lights, you have to understand it's going to take place in an atmosphere of darkness. That's the only way it will happen. Beloved, listen. If you're a believer, if you are indeed one who has seen this great light, is it not, in fact, true that your love and adoration for Christ is all the more deepened and intensified the more you become aware of your own sin? That you have such deepening affection and gratitude for your Savior because you are beginning to see the depths from which he has saved you. We cannot, we cannot enjoy the light without seeing the darkness. But take it to another point of application. There is darkness all around us. We live among a people of unclean lips, as Isaiah would say. We live in an atmosphere of darkness. And so, is it not, in fact, true that it's incumbent upon us as God's people to recognize this for what it is? That we live in a fallen and corrupt world of darkness. And whether it's at this season of the year or any other time of the year, is it not incumbent upon us to see that exactly for what it is? And rather than grumbling and complaining about it, being frustrated at all the worldly people acting worldly all around us, or being so consumed with our own expectations for fun and frivolity and celebration of our Christmas, we fail to see that there is darkness all around us that needs light. We fail to recognize that unbelievers need the light of the gospel more than anything else. And it's quite possible, have you noticed, that unbelievers during this period of time will sing about Jesus. They will sing carols that exalt Christ without a thought. Is it not possible that the Lord might open a door of opportunity for the gospel in a season like this if we are so inclined to be attentive to his providential opportunity that he puts before us? Rather than getting frustrated at all the materialism and all the consumerism all around us, we need to recognize this is the world. It is a world of darkness. But we have the light. And furthermore, as I said in my introduction, there are people, even in our midst, who have seen the light, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, but are walking through a season of darkness. They're hurting. They've suffered loss. They're dealing with things in their future that are causing them anxiety and trouble. And if we are so consumed with our experiences of Christmas and we don't see that darkness, we might fail to be the church for them. Just like Isaiah, 
We need to really see the darkness, and it is dark. If we're going to have any opportunity to redeem Christmas this season, we must see it. Do you see it? Well, question number two. Again, straightforward from the text. Do you see the darkness, but also have you seen the light? Have you seen the light? Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. There's obviously this natural interdependency here that we can all recognize. As I alluded to in my Christmas lights sort of illustration or analogy, our ability to see light is directly contingent upon the observable presence of some measure of darkness, right? There has to be some measure of darkness for us to be able to actually perceive the light. So that's the natural dependency here. But there's also a spiritual interdependency that not everybody can see. And it's this. We are incapable of truly seeing the darkness unless or until we have actually seen the light. Now, to be clear, this is not some mystical ray of individual illumination. This is not some fanciful notion of special insight that will relieve you of your burdens and your anxiety. Isaiah here is describing something real, something historical, something involving actual nations and people and places and kings and rulers. In verse 1, we see these explicit references again in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, a real place, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Real places. He is speaking about something that is true. It is historical. It actually has happened. This place, this area, this region that he's talking about, it's the northernmost part of Israel. It's the region through which the various intruding forces would come. These powers would come westward and southward toward the seacoast, and they would come right through this region on their way to lay siege to the tribes of Israel and the various regions and cities there. It was also a melting pot. This is where, for example, the Assyrian captivity, people were taken away and pagan people were settled there, and it was, it was a mixture of people. It was, it was a place of mixed races and mixed tribes a world of varied and sundry gods and forms of worship and cultures. That's why it's called Galilee of the Nations. It was, a, it was a melting pot area, but it was an actual area. And you'll also notice in the text here that Isaiah is employing perfect tense verbs, indicating this is completed action. These things that he's talking about in Isaiah chapter 9, he, he employs these perfect verbs to indicate they've already happened. He's using what are called prophetic uh, perfects. One commentator put it this way, in the uncertainty of his own milieu, he nonetheless could look at a future moment 
and describe its events with the certainty of completed actions. In other words, Isaiah prophetically was speaking as though future events had already happened as an indication of the certainty of their occurrence. Real events we're talking about. We are not talking about mystical secret knowledge. We're not talking about some kind of special emotive illumination that will relieve our strain and our burdens. We're talking about real people, real things, real actions. Indeed, what Isaiah knew as future certainty, we now know as a historical reality. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, we read this. Now, when he heard that John, Jesus himself, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the light. The light is a person. The light is Christ. Have you seen this light? If you're looking for relief, if you're looking for illumination, if you're looking for insight, what you may not know is what you're actually longing for is a person. You're longing for Christ himself. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is not some trite, sentimental symbol. He's not some image of love and joy and hope and happiness at Christmas time. He is the light of life. He's the light of the world who came in complete fulfillment of what the prophets like Isaiah foretold. Even beginning his earthly ministry in this place of darkness, in this place that was known as a contemptible region, he came and he ministered and served in that actual place. And he came to bring light and life to those who would heed his call to repent and to follow him. This light has come into the world. And it's in a world of darkness that he came, but it's no mere light of enlightenment. This light doesn't just illuminate gloom and anguish and downtroddenness. This light, like what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, this light raises us up out of ultimate darkness and spiritual death. What, how much more dark can you get than to be spiritually dead? And this light is the one who raises us up and makes us alive in Christ. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of this text, says this, It is noteworthy 
that the clearest promises of the Messiah have been given in the darkest hours of history. It is the prophets, if the prophets had been silent upon the coming one before, they always speak out in the cloudy and dark day. For well the Spirit made them know that the coming of God in human flesh is the lone star of the world's night. Do you see the darkness? And have you seen the light? Have you seen the Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord? Well, if you have, if you have seen the light, and you do have life in Jesus Christ, if you are aware of the darkness around you, you are mindful of the darkness within you, then might I suggest four redemptive disciplines for us to consider as we wrap up our study today that might aid us and establish our hearts and our minds as we seek to redeem Christmas this year. The first is this. Might I encourage all of us to rejoice in and share God's abundant provision. In Isaiah 9 verse 3, He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Again, in this prophetic perfect tense, describing things that have not yet happened, but speaking of them as though they have, giving them certainty of outcome. He begins to describe these future blessings for the people of Israel. And it's blessings that produce abundance of joy, overflowing joy to the people. So rather than them being a nation of suffering and desolation and depopulation and captivity and genocide, they will be a nation that's multiplied. Instead of them being covered in gloom and anguish, there will be joy, unbounding joy, abundant joy, The kind of joy that's produced as a result of this bountiful harvest. More than you could possibly need. The fruits of your labor paying off in a way that is overly abundant beyond what your capacity to take in would be. Or the joy of a victory in battle where you share in the victory by dividing up the spoils. You share the warrior's reward. And there's joy and it's abundant and it's overflowing. And it's a shared joy. And is this not to be the hallmark of us as believers? Joy? Regardless of circumstance. Regardless of season. In fact, Galatians tells us quite specifically that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? It is to be characteristic of the Spirit's presence within us, working in us and working through us, that we are to be people of joy, abundant joy. But, you know, it's also a discipline. I don't know about you, but I sometimes... Some people that know me well might say a lot of the time, probably, have to work at being joyful. But not just a trite, empty joy, a genuine joy that is rooted and grounded in the light. But it's the kind of joy that if it is rooted in that place, in that person, in that salvation, it is a joy that's abundant and abounding. It is a joy that's more than enough to share with others, right? But it's a discipline. We, we looked at this in James, 
Chapter 1, count it all joy. Consider it. As you're going through trials, you have to work at joy. It's not going to be something that is the natural response to trial. But yet, it is possible for the believer because we know that in Christ there is fruit that's being produced. That God is using the trial to produce something transcendent and eternal in us. He's using it to mature us. And by implication and by subsequent text in James to use us in the ministry of life and light to others. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4 tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it again, rejoice. But then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In other words, the character that you possess in Christ, the disciplines of joy, the discipline of rejoicing, that you cultivate in your life is to have an effect on others. It's to be visible to others. Your character is to be known by others. And so this season, as we consider how we might redeem Christmas, I would suggest that what we could do is we could rejoice in and share God's abundant provision and our circumstances don't dictate how we do that if our joy is rooted in the light who has come. If we are seeking joy anywhere else, it will not be a joy that can be shared. It will be a joy that we have to protect and that we have to feed with the stuff of this world. But if we are to redeem Christmas, we will root that joy in Christ himself It will produce in us a wellspring of joy, an abundant joy that we can share because we have known God's gracious provision. Well, secondly, another discipline we could employ is to revel in and trust God's sovereign deliverance. To revel in and trust God's sovereign deliverance. Look with me briefly at chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken... As on the day of Midian, you have this image of being delivered from oppressive burdens. And really, this is a deliverance that only God can do. You have this example given of Midian, the day of Midian. This is the account found in Judges of Gideon, who was not characteristically considered a warrior. And yet God used him to win a mighty battle against God's enemies But he did it in a very unique way where he dwindled down the army of Israel to 300 people to go against a massive arrayed force and to use simple elements, broken pottery and horns to confuse and confound the enemy and win the battle. And the point being that there is a sovereign deliverer We have a God that we can trust. In fact, we can revel in his deliverance. We can celebrate it. 
You have this deliverance from oppressive burdens, but you also have deliverance from conflict and war in verse 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken on the day of Midian. And then verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Conflict, war, the weapons of war, the accoutrements of war will be fuel for fire. They will not be used for conflict and war any longer. This is reflective of Isaiah's statements in chapter 2, verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is peace. This is true peace. And that's what this light, this Christ, this Messiah brings is peace. One commentator said it this way, we look forward to the day when we will see not just the destruction of the weapons of war, but of our own human desires to use them. This is a complete sovereign deliverance from the tumult and the conflict and the weaponry of war. One commentator said, the longing for that reality, for justice and for peace and for a renewed moral world order is representative of the deepest longings of the lives of men and women. We have many, many people in our culture today who are pursuing justice, who are looking for deliverance from oppression. Beloved, the gospel is the answer. The light is the deliverer. And we need to trust in God's sovereign deliverance. We may find ourselves hemmed in. We may find ourselves laboring under temporal burdens. And we may be tempted to allow those burdens to produce in us a sense of defeat and hopelessness. And as I said earlier, these burdens that we can carry become all the more poignant this time of year when we feel like we're supposed to be joyful, when we believe that we should be able to join in all the merriment that we see all around us. But we must learn not to revel in revelry, but to revel in the sovereign deliverance of God himself and to trust in that sovereign purpose. And this is not just something that we trust in to carry us through temporal burdens and struggles and conflicts, but it's what we trust in to deliver permanently the world from this kind of conflict. This has eschatological implications as well. Do you not at times feel the weight of conflict and turmoil just in our culture, in our society? Does that not weigh you down at times? And are you not, like I am, tempted to look to worldly systems of government and politics and leaders as the solution, as the remedy? Policy, this particular bill, that particular policy will solve the problem, beloved. If our trust is diverted away from God's sovereign deliverance, we will find ourselves all the more weighted down by these oppressive burdens. If we're going to redeem Christmas, we need to revel in and trust God's sovereign deliverance and no one else's.
Well, thirdly, might I suggest that we reflect upon and marvel at God's miraculous condescension. This is the heartbeat of this text. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you find yourself reflecting upon the wonder of the Incarnation? This amazing condescension of God himself? It's the Incarnation that makes everything in this text and really everything else that we see in Scripture, it it, it makes it all plausible and possible, the Incarnation. Think of it with me for a moment. In fact, let's reflect upon the Incarnation just together as an exercise. This, this wonder of the eternal God becoming man, condescending to occupy humanity. The Son of God born of a virgin? Of course. Of course. Makes perfect sense. If you marvel in the Incarnation... Confounding the elders in the temple with his knowledge of the scriptures and his insight into them at the age of 12? Yeah. He's a wonderful counselor. His counsel is a wonder. His knowledge is a wonder. It's not contingent upon anything but himself. It's a wonder. Of course. He is God made man. He's the wonderful counselor. Feeding thousands with some fish and a few loaves of bread, calming storms, walking on water, giving sight to the blind, healing the lame, casting out demons and raising the dead. Absolutely, he's the mighty God. Of course that makes sense. What else would we expect? God occupying flesh and just setting up a Twitter account and not doing anything else? That is not the incarnation. Patiently shepherding his disciples, welcoming children to sit with him, loving and caring for the lowest and the least, forgiving sin. Yes, that's exactly how the everlasting father cares for his children. That's what it looks like. Exactly. It only makes sense if you revel in the incarnation. Living a perfect life, dying a perfect sacrifice for sin, rising from the dead to make intercession on behalf of his people, giving us the ministry of reconciliation so that others can have peace with God. Absolutely. Why? He is the prince of peace. That's what he does. That's who he is. It makes perfect sense. What else would you expect? If we, this season, can develop the discipline of reflecting upon, really reflecting upon, and then reveling in the wonder of the incarnation, 
it will go a long way to helping us redeem the season to the glory of God. J.I. Packer says it this way, The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny, the second representative head of the race, and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. It is here, in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. Marvel at it. Marvel at it. Reflect upon it. And then finally and quickly, I close with this. If we were to redeem Christmas, might we rest in and hope for God's future redemption? God's future redemption. We started off by talking about the darkness around us. It's still dark, isn't it? And we feel it. But there is a future, a future redemption. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's a certainty. And we can rest in that. That is the future. It is a future redemption. Andrew Peterson wrote a song called Is He Worthy? We sang it actually this past Easter. And I'll just close with this. The refrain of the song and the, re- the repeating back of the words, you may know it. He says this, do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Yeah, we do. Is all creation groaning? It is. But is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. And is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that you have come as a great light. We are so grateful that in your Son you have brought life that you have pierced the darkness 
of our hearts and that you have cast away the gloom and despair that could not be resolved any other way. We are so grateful that you have given us your word through the prophet Isaiah to reveal this truth to us, to give us this light and this life. We are so grateful that you have fulfilled this prophecy in Christ himself. And Father, we are so overwhelmed by your kindness and grace that you have made this light known to us, even in the midst of our darkness. Would you, by your grace, enable us this season to celebrate in redemptive ways as we reflect upon the truth of your coming. And Father, would you use us redemptively as we seek to bear this light and to be this light that others might be drawn to it by your grace and by your sovereign power, that we might share in the joy of your salvation with others and that redemption would characterize our celebration of Christmas this year. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.